0: Whiskey Explorers, a podcast where we discuss everything there is to discuss about whiskey. I'm Peter and I'll be joined by Stuart in each episode where we'll ask the questions and seek out the answers that are prompted by a love of whiskey. If you want to know more about how we came to be making this podcast, please have a listen to the Season 1 trailer. In Season 1, we'll be focusing on the fundamentals of single malt Scotch whiskey production everything from barley to fermentation to maturation will be examined and explored in exhaustive detail. If you'd like to know more about Scots Whiskey Explorers or if you'd like to get in touch leave comments or suggestions please go to www.scotswhiskeyexplorers.com and you can find us on twitter at Whiskey Scots. Thank you for listening to Scots Whiskey Explorers we hope you enjoy it now please sit back relax pour yourself a dram and enjoy our conversation about
1: water. Hi Peter, how you doing? Yeah. Good sir.
0: Good to see you. How how yeah, how are you doing it.
1: yourself? Lockdown's a bit crazy. We're getting through. Keeping on, keeping on. I think that's Aye. the main thing. So we're um we're here for episode two. Woohoo! Episode two of Aye. Scott's Whiskey Explorers. I I wonder if if anybody ever stumbles upon episode two and doesn't know anything about episode one, uh, should we tell them just now who we are and what we're trying to do here?
0: Aye. Um, well, I'll I'll go first. Well, um, well, I suppose we should set out the general, which is um. Will become apparent probably as 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 things unravel. Is that neither neither is a professionally involved in any of
1: this. in any capacity whatsoever?
0: A, yeah, a pair of pair of enthusiasts who like a bit of whiskey and 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 like to ask some questions. Really, what what
1: we might lack in um, professionalism will make up for uh, an enthusiasm.
0: Yeah, well, I hope so, and. You know, just o- over the years, we've uh, had a good, uh, good crack about whiskeys we like, and sometimes whiskies we don't, and uh, and I've had a, a wee look about and a wee bit more depth because there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there said about whiskey, and you, it, it's nice to bring a wee bit of a critical, some critical thought to that.
1: Yeah, but um, I've noticed with with the. With a lockdown and the time we've had available to dive into the darker parts of the Twitter sphere and the Instagram landscape, and, and and check out how much whiskey content there is out there, it's just it's quite incredible. Sometimes I think there's so much content, just so much. So I mean, some of it's great. I'm 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 a a, a regular kind of consumer of. We bit a wee bit of whiskey content on Twitter and a, you know not so much elsewhere, but um yeah, so you and I would be kind of sharing a dram on a regular occasion and and picking apart various bits about whiskey and and we thought, hmm, let's uh why don't we dig a bit deeper and see what we can come up with, so yeah, asking questions, I think most of all is. A big part of what this is about. Uh, I, I I would hasten to add, I, I, I'm not saying I'm going to come up with any revelatory answers or any blinding insights, but um, you never know what we might stumble upon.
0: Yeah, I, 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 th- I think you're right there. I'm, you know, th- We're enthusiasts, we're not experts, but at the same time, you want to be. Bringing a, a bit of a critical eye to the thing, but but we're not here to destroy the, destroy the thing we love or throw no. the baby out with the water. It's much more about trying to weigh up what what's going on or or what what we find, or because we're we bombarded with all these things. And I think you're you're more um, you're more engaged in the Twitter sphere and other platforms like that than than myself, am much more of a... An old dinosaur when it comes to the old books which inevitably go out of go out of print or are go out of relevance quite quickly mm. you know the probably the most you know, there's a the book that's published every year by like the the malt whiskey yearbook you No, know, already but by the point it's published the information information is often out of date yeah the the internet is much much more a way of of finding out what's going on. If you're that way inclined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I, um, I prefer to kind of share what's going on with this, a sense of love of what we do, rather than I'm not looking for any great critical story out there. No. And, um, revelation.
1: When revelation. When you and I were kind of kicking this around to begin with and, and thinking about doing this and having a chat and recording it, basically is what it is. just you and I having a chat and have, Recording it and seeing you know where the conversation leads is um we decided fairly early on that it wasn't going to be a a tasting review kind of podcast of you know what are what are your tasting notes for whiskey x and what are my tasting notes for whiskey x because I mean first of all, there's just so much of that out there anyway there's just everywhere you look there's you know there's a lot of review sites and what i taste isn't going to be the same as what you taste or the same as what anyone else tastes so,
0: I know, so it's tender. very it's very subjective isn't it and yeah and i suppose we to think about what, what, what will we bring into the party if you like what was unique and i think we would both sense that there's a lot of enthusiasts out there but there's mm. not that many Scots out there who Growing up in the context of understanding, uh, having a different experience of being immersed in Scottish culture, uh-huh. where whiskey has flitted in and out of that over the years, because well, whiskey isn't still uh, well. I'm just gibbering now off the top of my head. I'm still pretty sure whiskey isn't number one sold spirit in Scotland. It's it will be vodka.
1: Oh, I I would think so. Yeah, but um and as much as it's a Scottish product and. um you know there's huge amounts of scottish population involved in the in the production and the sale and the and the marketing of of it there's, when it comes to the kind of blogosphere and and those kind of enthusiasts who are taking up their enthusiasm online I'd, scots are kind of silent in there i, I don't I, I, you know i'm happy to be uh corrected but i, I I'm not stumbling across very many Scottish bloggers or vloggers. I mean the only one that can really really spring to mind is Roy aquaviti so um and big shout out to to what he's doing. It's phenomenal what what he's uh you know produced so um I you know, I think in some small way we might we might contribute and at least have a good chat about it on the way so yeah.
0: Yeah, well, there's there's a uh, geeky information to be shared that might might help folk have, or well, but <laughs> the start point is for us is to yeah. find you know an insight into what's actually going on because, like I was mentioning about being immersed in Scottish culture, a lot of some of that comes with a lot of blether. a lot of that's a bit can be a bit tartan and a bit romantic oh, wow. and, a, and a bit Brigadoon in it. That's that's not where. Modern Scottish culture is that, no, per se. Not, not to say that, that those But I suppose what I'm, point of making is that those images are used to sell whiskey in terms of you know, being a romantic vision of the Scottish Highlands and yeah. some, some magnificent alchemy going on. Yeah. For years and years and years in a, a wee a wee hut somewhere next to a burn. Yeah. But if you go to go and live it, I. Fair to say, without without any criticism, to go and live it, it's not hot. <laughs> in fact, it's more than it's more than two huts. You know, it's a fairly big way. So it's about trying to square or or find a, a path through those. I suppose a wee bit of marketing in and, and somehow debunk a wee bit of what can be a highly industrialised.
1: Process. yeah and just to 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 put a little pin in that in that whole scottish culture where does scotch whiskey fit within all of that how does it how is it intertwined because it surely is um i stumbled upon the, something like i'm going to try and look it up there was something along the lines of the monte carlo Whiskey society uh, and it's patron obviously is um Crown Prince Albert of Monaco um and how do a we a we flick through their website to see what they're what they're all about and and, and and their it's very much a private club and that's one of their high uh, numbered aims in the, on their, their, their list of Aims and objectives is we we aim to remain a private club by invite only etc etc. i cetera. Et cetera.
2: And we'll in then.
1: No, I thought for a minute I'd might file them a wee email, but when I saw that, I thought nah, maybe not. But um, one of their stated objectives is 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 the um, the kind of uh, furtherment of uh, a kind of exploration and uh, examination and. Uh, celebration of Scottish culture, and as far as I could see, that that, that went as far as them celebrating whisky. I didn't see them celebrating <laughs> much else about Scottish culture, contemporary or otherwise. Anyway,
0: <laughs> you know, which I suppose by comparison we're a bit like saying when Mon- Monaco or Monaco is. I'm getting my picture now as a casino with a handsome, slightly middle-aged, grizzled man walking out just before dawn, his bow-tie off, and he's either broken the bank or he's lost everything. You know, there's there's more to it than that, I suppose, without being, hoping I'm not being overly critical (laughs) So
1: their mission... uh their mission is to be a private society of quality and exclusivity. Is <laughs> there one of their mission statements is to build the relationships between Scotland and the Principality of Monaco through cultural exchange to practice and to promote social responsibility with regard to alcohol and to encourage a positive lifestyle in the art and the arts and young people from the Principality or Scotland by means of individual sponsorships. So there you go. It'd be interesting to find out if anybody from Scotland in the art scene has received a sponsorship from
0: no, and from I just came, I think David Cooke-Tart lives in Monaco.
1: I, well, he probably does knows his way around. I'm sure he knows his way to the shops.
0: There's some, and he he too has a he's got he's part of a cycling club, I believe. Oh, right, okay. Which I think is probably founded on the same basis of that you need a special invite to join all that stuff. Yeah, but I, I think probably ultimately there's quite a few cyclists live there.
1: Um, so that could be um uh a featured episode on on uh on one of our one of our podcasts we could see if we could invite them for a wee chat and see if they want to discuss their
0: you you you'll write that email then
1: I think I might yeah we'll fire it off see see what we get back. Um so talking about uh, episodes and such like um this is this first series of Scott's Whiskey explorers we are diving deep or hoping to kind of dive deep and have a have a good look at the scotch whiskey or i should say the scotch malt whiskey production process because of after um after last after the last episode we in episode one we we talked a bit about barley um uh, we didn't really kind of um deal with any other cereals so by a mission, we're, we're actually stating, you know, we're we're that we're going down the malt whiskey path rather than looking at any other uh, grains or blends and such like. So, no, I mean that's all there to to be explored at another date. But um, episode right. episode one, uh, or oh, sorry, series one, um, production, scotch scotch malt whiskey production. We're trying to pick it apart and have a good look at it and. It gives us an opportunity to un- try and understand it a little bit better. Episode one barley. Um, if you're interested in going back and having a listen to episode one, it'd be great to get some feedback from folks. See what the um, see what the general consensus is. Um, episode one barley. Did we did we miss anything? I th- I, we recorded it a wee while ago, so I'm forgetting really.
0: No, i um, I think we we did as well as we. Could in the circumstances now that that sounds. I hope that doesn't sound come across very boastful. I think, given the nature of how we're recording this at the moment,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, we're, we're slightly disconnected, in as much as we're recording this over the internet through you know through a kind of chatting medium. Mm-hmm. Getting used to the whole process ourselves. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm hoping that. Well, I I thought listening back to some of the stuff that my enjoyment of your conversation. In general, came through, and I hope that, that other people get the sense of that. That I think we've got we're interested in what one another's got to say. And I, I, in and of itself, actually, I thought even thinking about barley, there was there, there was so much to say. Oh, there's tons. I, I, I... Kind of proving their own point that when you take a couple of steps back, mm-hmm. rather than just blathering and getting getting a wee bit nippy after a couple of drams. Actually, when you've sat down over a few days and and spent some time looking around at the issue, there's a remarkable amount of understanding to be gained from just spending a wee bit of time.
1: Just a a little bit of digging kind of um, uncovers quite a few little treasures. Um, I'm I'm, I'm particularly glad that we've we've got this opportunity to to do this and it's great to, to sit down with a man as learned as yourself and chat honestly and openly about such things. It's great fun. Um, but thoroughly, I'd recommend it to anybody.
0: <laughs> You're too kind.
1: <laughs> um, <clears throat> so that was uh, episode, episode one was Barley. Um, and I'm sure we can go back there at some point and, and do a wee, as you say, that things change and the the industry evolves and changes, you know, day by day. So at some point we can go back and have a have a, another look at the whole broad topic of barley and see see how it's changed over time and see what else we can uncover.
0: Yeah, I think you're right, and then also even I was suggesting that Boots go out of date really quickly. Even, even since we had a chat about barley, I've noticed a couple of things have happened, and I'm not wanting to be thinking I'm promoting these anyway, but given the difficulties over the summer for the festivals, they, they, some distillers have already put their, their, their proposed bottlings up online. And uh, we talked about cohoming during mm. barley, and they had put up a small sampling of um, different barley varieties. And so there was an, there's an opportunity there. Um,
1: Were they, because uh, we, we had a brief exchange about that, and i was i nearly i nearly went for it but I'm, I'm keeping my powder dry for waterford um was that's not new make that they were doing was it was it aged
0: it, if i remember rightly it was aged yes right because also there was another option came through from Razzie, and i'm thinking i'm pretty sure Razzie was new makes but it wasn't it was plain British spirit. Right. It wasn't whiskey yet. But I'm yeah. pretty sure the Cocom and stuff was was whiskey. Mm-hmm. Um again with the different barley varieties.
1: right um, so you could see how the different varieties would yeah. be expressed through the Colhoman yeah. prism, if you like.
0: Yeah. So I mean that was a new event and like you said, you know, the the probably the if if there's such a concept, the keep the keepers of the barley provenance or certainly, would want to put themselves front and centre would be mm. Waterford, but I would imagine, and they mm-hmm. certainly be one of the most um, engaged in the process. Not not to diminish any of the efforts from anyone else, but mm. and and their stuff's on the way. It would seem, yeah. So the, announced
1: the, announced all, today,
0: all, yeah. All of those stuff, all of the stuff that we've talked about is was I mean, already been superseded by by events. Which is <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. what was <laughs> what was then. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. On, along those lines, a little bit frustrating when we we'd been in in the planning stages trying to get this off the ground for a number of a number of weeks, and then we record the we recorded our conversation about barley, and then the, the next day, everybody's talking about barley on Twitter, and yeah. you know barley's everywhere, and I was thinking, oh man, <laughs>
0: we yeah. Although I, I wouldn't get too angsty about that. I I'm um, you know. It's a wee bit like once you've started something, you you begin to pick it up in other areas, and I, and some of the stuff actually you point you found and were were in touch with. Um, what how I, I could we be, be generous about this? The 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 questions were answered in a way that was wasn't quite as expansive and in, and investigative uh-huh. as 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 a, maybe you might expect. Yeah, but but but, but people have got their own. Their own thing to say, you know, that that's fair play, you know.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. Um so episode one was barley. Episode two, malting, the malting process. Yeah. Um so what was interesting for me, just kicking it off, was by and large, the malting process. Anyone who's looked at whiskey production or, or visited visited a distillery Will be aware of the of the floor malting process, or perhaps uh, aware of aware of the the concept. But what I wasn't aware of was exactly how much is how much work and how much um, processes are undertaken by a third party, you know, a, a, yeah. uh, by the maltsters who, by and large, are not employed at or in the distillery itself.
0: Yeah, I th- I thought that was an interesting contrast, isn't it? Because right away when I started, I too that well, I've you know I've I've stood in the malt floor in Highland Park in LaFroy in, mm. in Springbank. I've been in, I've been in the kiln, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I've seen the kiln in Kokoman it's we, and I've well, I've been at the malt floor in Kokoman as well, you know, and. It was, those images were very much in my head when I, and I had to take a wee step back from that. And, but also at the same time that we, that when we set out in this to start this chat right away back at the beginning, we were talking about a process or a, a beautiful spirit that comes at the end of the, a deceptively simple process you know, of a, of just water, yeast, and barley, and one that's
1: remained by and large the the same for hundreds of years. Yeah.
0: And although and I'm I'm sure we'll will un, we'll unpick this and unpack this as as we go through, but also the actual process of malting is in of itself a simple three step process, you know, of just getting the barley wet, getting it to germinate, then drying it again.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, so steeping, germinating and kilning. But Sounds simple to say, but in in the un unpicking of it, it is. I was it was fascinating. Yeah. About the contrast between uh, you know the so called commercial maltsters, who you would imagine, well, are producing malted barley on an industrial scale to satisfy the needs of a massive whiskey industry, but there's something underlying that is a little bit there's a little bit of the alchemy process still at work there there's there's something of an art oh, yeah. as as much as there is of a science and i we'll, we'll hope that that will come through when when we get a when we get a chat on
1: i think especially in the um the kilning process as you and I've chatted about this previously maybe not to jump the gun too much and and, and fast forward to to the kiln but we've had well, let's I'll tell you what, I won't say anything else, so we'll, we'll wait and we'll do it maybe in a little bit more of a chronological order. We'll come to the kilning in, in, in due course
0: because I, I mean, then we get to mention the p word,
1: the p, <laughs> we do. Um, but I was going to mention the t word, Tetrazolium.
0: Oh, you're way ahead already. Go on,
1: <laughs> well. Um I was gonna have a wee rummage around the 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 procedures that the maltster might undertake when they take delivery of the grain. Uh-huh. So as far as I can see there's four tests undertaken on arrival. So the, the malt the consignment of barley will arrive at the maltster and they want to check for purity, they want to check that it's not damaged, they want to check that it's not subject to mould or you
0: know. So this it's, this like their quality checking process. Yeah,
1: yeah. So as far as I can see, one of the first ones that they would undertake after a kind of general assessment of the quality of the of the consignment would be a germination test to see if the germination levels are high enough. Because mm. if they're not, then they're not going to be able to germinate, that's the whole point of the, the malting process as we know is they germinate it then they stall that germination from completing. So the tetrazoleum staining is how they test for viability and um, what I could garner, information I could garner was that a certain amount of grains are um, cut so that the, the husk has been the husk of the grain has been incised in some way and then a tetrazoleum solution is they're immersed in this solution and uh, after a after a period of about three days the corns that are viable um they would turn red <clears throat> and the dead corns would remain white so um the monster is then able to assess whether you know what percentage viability and they're looking for apparently they're looking for a 98% potential
0: so so if you you fire in stuff that's that's not got any germinating oh it has to have a that's a very high germinating potential probability
1: yeah yeah so they'll 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 take 100 grains and after three days if any if, if 98 or more of those grains have shown that they turn red, then that's a that's that's a that's the green light for them. They can it's passed the, the germination test.
0: Yeah, and I think when when we did barley, we talked about the with some like only about twenty percent of the stuff that arrives at the maltsters actually makes it to be in um, malted for for whiskey or production. Right. So, well,
1: it's if, high standards. If,
0: yeah, that is if if those stats are right. Now, I've not got, I've not got my notes for for the barley production, but that 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 explains well, that that's a pretty hefty expectation yeah. on the farmer to be firing in barley at at that level of quality. But then, well, maybe it goes to show what folk, folk can deliver it then, because you know, it's not like we've got a shortage of barley, is it?
2: No. I know. Although presumably
0: um, it changes year by year, depending on the climate of or the the type of summer we're having. It's like. it's
1: probably a sliding scale, yeah. Um, but that that that's the figures that I that I found was that a ninety eight percent potential okay. is what they're looking for. And I think the other the the four tests, the other the the second one is relating to the moisture. So I'm not sure whether the the farmer would store the grain. He would have to store the grain somewhere before he transports it. So the grain's getting stored, and it's hoped that it's being dried down to about twelve percent. Good barley stores best when it's got twelve percent moisture, long-term storage, and molten barley germinates more evenly and quickly when it's stored with a twelve percent moisture content. So the monster will then test the intake. The of the consignment and see what you know if it's got a higher uh, moisture content and I presume that that would be a, a a cause for rejection if it's if the moisture's too high.
0: Yeah, I seem to remember there's ways of drying barley now prior to getting it to the maltster, so there there are all sorts of artificial ways of keeping the moisture content at that level for the farmers before they're they're shipping it down to the maltsters. But again. It sounds like there's a bit of an effort being made there. So I suppose it's to everybody's advantage to have good quality malt coming through in the first instance. Mm-hmm. Not like you want to be selling rubbish because it's not—it's no. just going to come back, isn't it?
1: I presume the the, the maltsters will have storage facilities where they can store. They can store the 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 multiple uh, consignments of grain for however long they need before the, the distillers call upon them because there's. There's only one harvest season, and distillers distill for forty odd, forty five weeks of the year. So that means they have to have grain coming in on a regular basis throughout the year. So that grain will have to be stored somewhere. I can't see the farmers having the having the capacity to store it. So I'm assuming they're molesters.
0: Not in the longer term, no.
1: Yeah. And then the the, the third um, test. Out of the four, is your very important nitrogen test? Aye. Did you did you see anything about that?
0: Well, I was remembering that from from the barley thing about well, if you if for beer making, if I'm right, you know, meaning beer to make pints as opposed mm-hmm. to beer to then be distilled into whiskey, the nitrogen content can be a bit higher, but for whiskey. Not so, it's a low nitrogen content and that's, or a way to sustain and maintain the low nitrogen is to have a lower fertiliser rate. And
1: When you're talking about low nitrogen content for for distilling, it appears that it's only malt distilling that requires, malt distilling requires a, a much lower nitrogen content than, than grain distilling. Any, any barley that's malted for grain distilling apparently they can get away with having a higher nitrogen content for some reason that no doubt we will investigate at some future point no. but the um the the nitrogen content of the barley has a has a, a direct correlation to the protein content and if you want to get really geeky what you would do is you would measure your nitrogen and multiply that by 6.25, and that gives you a protein level. So you would know how much protein you've got, and that then equates with starch-fermentable sugars further down the line.
0: i uh, well, maybe jumping ahead the then, because I think there's something about when protein molecules are larger than the starch or the, the maltose, and it's not at this point that it's problematic we have mentioned that before about how something that happens at this end might not seem significant, but once you get into the into the system, yeah it's problematic down the other end and I'm pretty sure you know, I'm kind of resting on my a kind of higher level chemistry and biology here, but I'm pretty sure the molecules of protein that are associated with nitrogen production are larger, so they adhere to the starches on the carbohydrates and the carbohydrates and the sugars in a different way. And then when, once you've done the mashing, you can't drain the flour. Because yeah. you've just got, yeah, your soup's too thick.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, was, I was reading but about we've,
0: we've, we've jumped ahead there, but I'm pretty sure. But I, I think that's a, a good example of how there's something that doesn't, it seems a bit innocuous now, but has a, a significant influence on what can happen down the line.
1: But that's a that's a really good point that I think was starkly kind of revealed to me earlier today. I was thinking about the episodes and trying to make something that's kind of compartmentalised, like episode one's barley, episode two's malting, episode three's mashing, episode four's fermenting, and and trying to make it very discreet, different processes. Everything that happens now has consequences further down the line so it's not process x happens then process y takes over then process z Mm -hmm. it's 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 very much a continuum where everything almost affects everything else yeah like you say there's upstream activities have a a a knock-on effect further downstream
0: I, i suppose one of the if i think back to when we were talking about the barley we were very clearly a group of distillers who was pointing out how important the different varieties of good quality barley were to the process. And that's in contrast to perhaps other distillers who, who don't put the same value around individual varieties because the whiskey they're producing in the end is produced from a, a large vatting of different mm-hmm. casts, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So the actual trail of what barleys have gone into the process isn't quite so important. But even in all that, although those individual the distillers who weren't advocating terroir, if you like, for, for barley, I didn't hear anyone putting a big shout out either for saying, Oh we'll just we'll just distill with any old rubbish then. Yeah. But it's still about good quality malt here.
1: It is very much so. Very much so, and just when you when you mention that, if I could find the notes, yeah, so I think it it's it's a lot of it's down to the um economies of size and economies of scale and and, and who's flexible and, and, and fleet of foot enough to be able to maneuver their processes in a way that allows them to express different things, so can if you're running a different batch of barley through can you treat it differently to tease out the different characteristics but but what cropped up in in my head there was I was looking through some notes and you're talking about um the larger players not being able to really do quite as much but it's interesting to note that the SWA uh, the Scotch Scotch Whiskey Association through the Scotch Whiskey Research Institute They do a lot of research projects and um, some of them are on topics such as malt processability, malting enzyme development, climate change, they're looking at all of that, disease resistance, and interestingly, they also fund projects into the effects of barley variety and environment on spirit character. In other words, terroir, I think that could be somewhat
0: well, uh, e- even the, described as that. Well, e- even the, in the discussion about barley, there were big boys that, in that discussion, you know, that Macallan, the legend of Macallan was that they favored Golden Promise for years and years and years. And I don't even suppose that we don't know if that's the case now, but Golden Promise was either good or it wasn't. It wasn't, you know, it can't be one or other.
1: Mm. So the old nitrogen content is is a biggie for um for distillers if the nitrogen content's too low um apparently the finished malt might not and i've got this in inverted commas it might not match with the yeast so that's beyond my realm of expertise i don't know quite what's being referred to there uh, on a chemistry basis on a chemical basis and so um yeah, testing they would test the testing for the nitrogen content the monster if it's not at the appropriate level. So the nitrogen content they're really looking for is about one point five percent. That's considered optimum. The monster then has the capacity to reject it if it's not if the consignment isn't um as expected and the nitrogen content isn't suitable for his needs.
0: You've, you've you've gone deep there, Stuart.
1: <laughs> too deep, too deep. Um, so th- how about a wee, wee quiz right at this point? I've got some figures in front of me. How how much whiskey can you get out of one acre of barley? We should have included this in the previous. Oh, episode.
0: I we we did include it. Did we? Or it wasn't, oh, geez, it was something about how what and mice do. I'm thinking back, but I think that was maybe more about percentage. So, right, okay, I'll just do some random figures out of my head. I think from what you know, it's, uh, I'm just making this really up from what I vaguely remember from last time. Say, CoComan regularly could get 300 liters from an acre, but if they did it local barley, they had their, their you know like their own farm barley, then they would probably lose about fifty of that so I remember right, saying'll go yeah. with 300 and uh, if it's Isla barley 250
1: <laughs> um I think the figures I've got might be garnered from a, a much larger facility that's that's kind of more fine-tuned to to really get the the yields so,
0: so well I can feel myself back pedaling now <laughs> <laughs> but I' <I'll, I'll laughs> sit here and I'll wait for the slap well, of the
1: So you're not you're not far off, right? Because uh, by my calculation, if you can get three tons of barley from an acre, I've got it calculated that you might get 400 litres from that from uh, each acre. And that would give you about 1700 bottles. That's 70 centiliter bottles. So very roughly one acre of one acre of barley from a distiller's point of view, one acre of barley is just under five hogsheads. Right. So okay. Just in case we're you know we're ever we find ourselves in a position where we've got an acre of barley, we'll yeah. we'll know how many hoggies we can fill.
0: Yeah, my back garden's not big enough. <laughs> um,
1: and so the the fourth test that I found out about that the monsters would do before they go on and do anything with the barley is a screening test so they're looking for even sized grains uh, with a good husk that hasn't been split they're looking for an even uptake of water because that will allow an even rate of germination so water water uptake apparently is uh, affected by the thickness of the husk and small grains apparently will underperform so what they do is they screen the, put the Pass the barley over a perforated screen, and if they're looking for ninety percent retention over that screen, so the, the screen has two point five mil holes in it, and they're looking for ninety percent of the consignment to not fall through the holes. So there you go. That's pretty much what I could find out about what the monster does before he actually undertakes any operations on the on the on the barley itself.
0: And well, presumably the size thing is is a relates to uh, kind of surface area to volume, and I think we hinted in that on barley about beer barley that it, it too is uh, it, it doesn't produce the same amount of spirit. And presume that, 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 that if if well the the actual structure of the barley head itself is is different. There are there are more seeds on the top, mm-hmm. so by virtue of that, smaller seeds, more of them, it's going to be more husk
1: yeah less sugar yeah there you go yeah and once again we, we come upon the conundrum of consistency and low costs versus flavor in your eventual product because if you're looking for a consistent product in terms of how it's processed you're looking for you don't want to be you don't want to be um, having to adjust your machinery and adjust your your mill and adjust your mash ton every time there's a different consignment of barley because you have to treat it differently if you if you're looking for low costs and effective processing consistent processing then you don't want to be changing these things around i mean the beer barley i think was responsible for breaking the rakes at (laughs) brookladdy so you know who wants to put themselves through that just as an experiment to to find out does this beer barley taste different? You know, that's a big gamble. They must have been a little bit peeved that day.
0: Yeah. Well and there was there was some stuff I picked up that Highland Park had experimented with beer barley as well. On that they couldn't get it to germinate. They're their obviously hadn't hadn't applied any of that tea stuff to it. <laughs> wow. But but then but then Highland Park do something slightly different in terms of malting, in that they they still import in a fair lump of barley. Mm-hmm. I think I think oh, maybe between seventy and eighty percent of their barley comes from from maltsters, but the stuff they do in their own floors is. Uh, is the only peated barley that goes into the process. Oh. So they they the, the peat that you get in Highland Park has been peated on on Orkney.
1: Ah, uh, it's Hobbister Moor. They still cut Hobbister Moor, don't
0: they? I would think so. Yeah. Uh,
1: um. So that's taken us up to the point where the maltster starts to you know he rolls up his rolls up his sleeves and gets stuck in. What did did you are, are you? Yeah, notice anything about that, or are you, are you diving straight onto the malt floor and rolling about? Oh the-
0: no, 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 no! Oh, no. <laughs> no. Let, let's not go that far. This just yet. <laughs> I, again, I, I think I was struck by this as a deceptive and the, the deceptively simple process, but the art and the skill and the, the technical know-how to actually deliver it is pretty impressive, really, because. All you're really trying to do is persuade the barley that it's springtime. Mm. There's something about Scotland's climate as well. It seems, as I understand it, is well suited to the production of barley because by the nature of the shortness of it, the, the barley itself has to work pretty quickly to try and, maximize its enzyme use to get the sugars into starch in the first place in the seed. and then, But then the malting process, rather annoyingly for the barley, if there's such an idea, turns that process on its head, getting the starch back to sugar. So it, it's really simple in terms of, well, what are you going to do? Well, it gets wet in the springtime in Scotland. We're going to persuade the barley that it's a good idea to start growing, but we don't want it to grow too quickly. Too much, because we want we don 't want the process about changing the stored energy in starch, we only want it to get as far as producing the sugar that it would then go on to use to grow yeah. so there 's an art it would seem to me in knowing knowing when to stop, but that 's at the end of the process because there 's also an art in the process of getting. The barley to engage in the process so it's not a case of whether you just well like you just pour water on it and go away for a cup of tea and come back it's, it's there's there's quite an an investment in terms of process now I, I realize actually already we're going down a particular I, I suppose it might help i suppose if we for me to think about floor maltings mm-hmm. and then we could maybe come back to the other options
1: Oh yeah. Okay. As a
0: comparison, because and 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 that's not to to lionize floor maltons in any way. Because I think I also th- I thought I found myself thinking quite carefully about those other so-called industrial processes along the way. The you know the centralised maltons and the the commercialisation of it. And you know. well, I I came to think of them in a more in perhaps more generously than I expected. Right. Okay. When when, when you consider. The so-called uh, traditional authenticity of floor maltings. But having said all that, it's a simple thing. You know, you've got a barley husk there. About eighty percent of its weight is mm-hmm. a starch, and it's the starch that maltsters are trying to extract. In terms of a chemical process that will change that starch into sugars. You no, know, um, mostly maltos, but there are there are there are others in there. And that's a really simple process it would seem, by just getting the barley wet. But so like you said, you've got the barley's arrived and the maltsters no between twelve and fourteen percent of its moisture content. But in two or three days time, assuming it's passed all those magical tests, that, that moisture content is going to be up there about forty five percent. But again, that's not all just you don't you can't just plug the hose in. Expect the barley to behave, it has to be nurtured through that processing. And um, you know, so, is that,
1: is that the, one of the st-
0: steepings you're talking about there? Where the- so, you, you'd steep the barley, or you have a big water vessel, a vessel with water to steep the barley in, and that might go in in the first soak for depending on the particular way the maltzers operate. But that, you know, that's going kind to of be maybe 12 to 24 hours. Mm. Then that's drained off, and and the barley takes a rest. On a couch <laughs> <laughs> Gorgeous view of all the barley oh, I'm, I'm havering now. All the bar- <laughs> sitting, sitting back um, you know, being served grapes and all that on its couch or cheslam. And uh, but then you know, it's soaked again, you know, for that double that period. Mm-hmm. Again, so it's it's not a case of where you can just expect the barley to do your will. You actually have to engage with the process of the growing of the seed to help it produce its best for you. And I, I quite I quite like that. It's not yeah,
1: You've got to work with its rules huh? and you've got to it's got it's gotta be on its terms to a degree.
0: Yeah. And I yeah, I was quite taken by that, I think. To get the best from it, you've got to be at your best as well.
1: I like it. I like it.
0: Yeah, and well there's I I, th- I think you're on top you're maybe more on top of these uh enzymes, but I think is it taste and si- taste that are operating to turn that starch in, into sugar?
1: Sounds right, yeah.
0: Yeah, and uh I think and well here we go. So you're looking at up to about fifty percent of that what that starch once it's converted will be maltose. Okay. So, so that—that's that, how you get the you know those multi-drinks that folk, some folk have before they go to bed and things like that. It's through the same process, like the malt barley, yeah. but you know, there's a whole other range of other sugars in there. Uh, kind of, I think fructose is right down at the end. Sucrose, sorry, yeah, and then fructose, and then you've got glucose, and then as one that was a new a new name to me was M- maltose which presumably is some kind of in between from malt, but I, I don't really know much about it. But they they'll fill up all the other kind of percentages of of this, these levels of sugars, right. and then in are the round. So, um, but we've only got as far as it, the barley's wet now. In fact, and the fact I've jumped ahead because we've only got to the point where the barley's wet. It's had a rest, and it's got wet again. Yeah but but these processes are beginning to be activated through the, the wetting process. But that, that again, doesn't happen in the steep. It happens on the malt floor.
1: So do, there's two or three immersions, there's two or three steepings. Mm-hmm. If you do it any more than that, I, I, I suppose, I presume that the, the, the process will be allowed to go too far. The germination process will be allowed to to... to to go to, no because it's, it's germinating on, on the malt floor isn't it
2: Yeah.
1: so well, yeah, well, I'm yeah. just wondering why, why two steepings, why three, why not four do we know
0: no other than well even in the spring in Scotland when it's wet it doesn't rain every day
1: <laughs> feels
0: like it <laughs> so there's a, a simplicity in that process of of getting the grain then to begin to start to get to work on itself. Mm. I think it's springtime and it's time to grow and start to lay down roots.
1: Yeah, time of sprout. Yeah. So traditionally that great word that's favoured by a lot of marketeers. Traditionally it would be spread out on the on the malt floor.
0: Yeah, and I mean just and the ones I've seen have never been out in other than concrete floors. So
1: concrete because it's dry and easy, relatively easy to keep clean. I imagine, yeah. yeah,
0: you know, maybe up to about thirty centimeters at the beginning, because again, and, but it might go down to as much as well as ten centimeters by the time the process is finished. Mm-hmm. But again, I imagine that's just because I'm wondering you know, the the kind of level of moisture. Then does that mean the grains are fat and, <laughs> and he's all over the place? Because, I mean, because I, again, it's not a given. You're going to have to work with the barley again, mm-hmm. uh, where the barley is going to need turned. Because once it's wet and put out in the floor and it's beginning to germinate, that will create heat and it will create carbon dioxide. And also, the rootlets will start to grow, the, the chits. And you don't want them to be uh, tangling all together because you're just going to end up with a carpet of barley.
1: Yeah, it's going to be yeah. havoc with your, with your mill.
0: Yeah, so that that um, you are gonna need to um, turn that, and you know, traditionally that's been with a a malt shovel or a shield, mm-hmm. but that that looks like bike-breaking work, really.
1: Aye, it's uh, it's one of the kind of iconic scenes, isn't it?
0: Yeah,
1: you know, it's crossed the mind of every distillery that currently uses malt floors. How can we get that picture of the guy turning the malt? We need to get that somewhere our, on the packaging or on the box somewhere. Because, I mean, it's, it's, it's time served and it harks back to how it's been done for many hundreds of years. Yeah. But saying that, I wonder what that gives us as a, something that inputs into the profile of the, the characteristics of the final whiskey. Do we know, I mean, even from a marketing point of view, do, do they have they honed their arguments so much that they can say... Well, we've got our floor maltings and it gives us X, Y, and Z in our spirit, other than the sense of it being done in-house and part of the process that's that's taking place in that same hallowed space of the distillery. Is that is is that the only reason why distilleries would, would actually still keep it on? Because they it, it, it looks good from a sales point of view, or does it does it really do anything for the flavour? Or conversely do we lose anything if i say we (laughs) do does the whiskey lose any characteristics if it's wholly produced by central central malted you know in in a more industrial centralized way
0: i think that from what i could surmise there were differences of the malts that were produced on malt floors. so lafroig's Malt is peated to a different peating level than the barley that the or the malt that they get from Port Ellen or from elsewhere. Similarly, more's the same. Uh-huh. If I'm if I'm understanding that right, and like you mentioned earlier on, Highland Park's imported malt is all unpeated, so it, the fennel content in the final malt you get in Highland Park all comes from what was malted on their uh, own malt. Yeah. So
1: uh, I'm I'm perhaps very late in joining these dots and rather dull-wittedly putting together the fact that those distilleries that have their own malt floor by dint of that they also have their own kiln Mm -hmm. would we find a distillery that kilns their own kilns some or, or a portion of their malt that isn't malted on their own floor is that a thing? Do we...
0: so That's a bit out. Sure, I think. Um, I, 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 hadn't, I hadn't. I hadn't quite an, an... any that I know of. You no, know, and you know, i you know, not. I would never, never c- claim to have absolute comprehensive knowledge of of, of anywhere. And, and in the process of this, there was there's a couple of distilleries that jumped out that have had molten floors or reintroduced molten floors that I wasn't so familiar with, like Benriach one. And, Jerich do their own malting, but again, there was no, in any of the discussion around that, there was no separation between malting and kiln, kilning. They were, the, they were in... It's
1: two know, halves of the same thing.
0: It was part of the same process.
1: Yeah. So so then, I don't know what the current state of affairs is with the Brook Laddie floor maltings. They were, they were, yeah. last year, they were... They was talk of salad and boxes being introduced there ooh, ooh. Um, and them they were going to rejig the, the layout of the place and introduce floor maltings of some kind um, but would that then automatically presume that there's going to be a kiln on site as well
0: well I, just thinking through what you're saying right the reason you'd be using the kiln is to dry the malt that you've got wet. Mm-hmm. I thought I had a solid argument there about no one buys in unmalted barley, do they? But clearly, folk do. <laughs> but if you, if your barley was already coming in malted, would you? I, I don't imagine it's possible then to kiln further because you, you're trying to stop trying. the germ- process. And although we've we've, we've we've already hinted that peat is important in that process in terms of additions of flavor and stuff like that. But you would, you'd only be drying your malt if it was wet.
1: Yep. You've got to, you've got to, and you don't want to leave it wet. Right. So the thing is they, they do, they do have to come hand in hand. Um, I, I was, as I say, dull witted and, and not, yeah, um, not, not
0: noticing. It, it's a pertinent question. Yes, you know, well, what, why? You know, it, we get so locked into just, well, that's just the way it is. That's mm-hmm. well, yeah, the way that.
1: it is. In this case, it's the way it is because that's the way it has to be. Because <laughs> cause the thing's wet and we need it dry, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, pretty much.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, there we go. Solved that one.
0: Right. So well, what that means is that actually, everybody's, well, once once we've got that floor melting process going on, and that, that takes a wee while, that can take a week or more. Why? of these hard-working guys in there with shovels or I've seen uh, kind of uh, almost like a a big rake that, that you pull behind you. or an, a, a, They just or, get
1: customers a... to do it most of the time, do they not? <laughs> <laughs> people on tour. Here, right. <laughs> come on in and turn them off for this.
0: Yeah, Well, in the times that I've had a go home, stop, I've just walked in off the street. I don't really want it. Should I not put my sand shoes on or something? <laughs> walking your precious barley. And that, that that's another conundrum, isn't it? You know, that we, we get very precious about these things, yet there you are, you've just walked in off the street and before you know it, you're walking down the length of the barley with a, a big rake at your back.
1: Aye, then after that, they're locking you in the kiln. You can't even breathe.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, well, all that goes on. You no, know, we're looking at maybe up to a week of hard labour in there of turning these, turning the barley, making sure that the wee rootlets don't get too um, too tangled up together. Uh. and and I think uh, the turning also helps the even gen- germination, know, because it's going to get warmer at the bottom.
1: Yes, uh, uh, yes so it'll get really. Warm and also, there.
0: you're going to get carbon dioxide building up and stuff like that, so that that needs to be managed. And I I think there's there's more to it than just turning it with a shovel. Is that great science of opening a window as well? Yes. <laughs> and just regulating the temperature within the actual malt floors. And then and then what you end up with is, is a, a big, a big magnificent piece of green malt, which when you've decided it's grown enough, you you're gonna to need to dry it off. And that, that's that's when you get your your barrels out and send it off to the kiln.
1: Yes, which will be at some other point in the distillery, yeah, it might get moved there either through a trapdoor or it might be a conveyor belt upstairs. Yeah. Or, so, uh-huh. we're t- we're talking about the the malt floor there, but it's maybe you earlier on said you wanted to skip forward and go to the malt floor before going back to the more industrial way of doing it, and all of the stuff that you've said so far, all of those processes, all the steeping, and the germination by and large happens in one big vessel apparently i was reading that there's a there's a a germination vessel no sorry um after the steeping it's moved to a germination vessel which then also doubles up as a drying drying vessel that can be part of the kind of drum
0: no i couldn't i couldn't pin this down to be to an to be absolutely exact, but the inference was being that the newer malton facilities mm-hmm. will have that where it's just one vessel that can do everything. Yeah. If I'm reading rightly, slightly older ones and Port Ellen comes to mind as a slightly older molten's um, it's a two, two part process. Right, okay. Where the malts germinated in one drum and dried in another. I see. But the no, short of phoning them up, yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I, I felt I I didn't enough from the descriptions I was reading, but and well maybe it might it might help actually to compare, because like you're saying there's there's you could have one or two vessels where all this goes on, mm-hmm. in a drum or a, germ, a, a germinating vessel, but even again that it's not a case of then just scushing cold you know, hosing down the barley and expecting to do its thing. It's tended again, and the barley's turned regularly, but again, that's not, although it's been steeped, it's it's tended or there's warm, there's moisturised air goes through. You know, so there's damp air goes through the barley, just to keep, again, about regulating temperature, mm-hmm. keeping the barley in good order. Again, although it's a different process, there's still clearly tending going on, look into the needs of the actual barley, that it, w- it won't dry out prematurely, but it'll still be getting the right levels of oxygen. there will still be discharge of carbon dioxide. All of those things are still going on, even in, you know, if you were to choose the prettiest building on Isla, for example, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't choose Port Ellen Maltings. Yeah. You know, because it, it is a, a big building. There's a lot of maltings involved. yeah. yeah. And, well, I suppose you you mentioned the what I thought was the outlier in this, Saladin boxes. Oh, aye. Because so that was always the the kind of whiskey pub quiz question: is who's got a Saladin box? Is it Charles Saladin? Charles, yeah, I think. Yeah, a French guy. Yeah. Do. But I I'd always, I I I think we'd had a chat. So Tam Do, by the way. Sorry. Tam Do, I think isn't it? Aye, that that's a legendary one, wasn't it? We we'd always have a chat. It was like, well, how does it work? And I, I always thought it was an Archimedes screw, you know, that that. that but it, it it's not. It's almost like um, from what I understand, it's like a you know quite a big trough, yep. and it's more like um, like your loiter, <laughs> rakes, <laughs> rakes go through it and and work it. Yeah, but um. They were a bugger to clean, apparently. So, not that many. Uh, right, okay. Them, but there but was more than Tam Do. Can you, can you remember, do you know any, you remember any more? Here's, here's your... No.
1: No, not off the top of my head. The no, legend
0: of no. Ben Rennis. Oh. So
1: yeah. when, when were they, when were they... Extricated from Ben Rinnis.
0: Well, I'm glad you asked that because I did write it down. <laughs> ben Rennes had them 64 to 84.
1: Oh. Uh, Dal Ewan.
0: Right. 1960 to 83.
1: So are we saying then that around about the 80s that's when, and we know that the, the mid-80s was a, 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 a big time of consolidation uh, within the industry and, yeah. and Ben Rennes, for example ran right about that time went down from a triple dist or some kind of triple distillation to double dis double distillation but no, no, can I- no
0: it'll be a wee bit later for Ben Rennes, but I think that's that period the consolidation for d c l
1: uh-huh so th- are we saying
0: d c l at the same time
1: right are we saying then that at that time when they had their own maltings, they would have been killing all their own production or Maybe just a Whoa. portion.
0: asking. That, that's a good question.
1: Because now in my head, every time somebody mentions malting, I'm going to be thinking, right, they're kilning there as well at the same time.
0: Yeah. Well, well, by definition, they would need to be, surely. Yeah. 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 And um, then there's an outlier as well as uh, Glen Keith. Oh. Okay. Because it, it's it's a relatively young distillery. It was only built in 1957. It it had. Um, Saladin boxes right until
1: 1976.
0: Okay. Uh, but you're right about Tamdu. It it was uh it was the outlier again, it had the longest lasting of the saladin boxes and they they installed them in 1950. They they're, they're still there apparently. But maybe maybe that's how Bruce did got a hold of some okay. of um, some saladin boxes going free. But when Ian McLeod bought the distillery, they chose not to to reuse them.
1: Oh, okay.
0: But
1: oh, yeah. the box re- boxes also used at points in different maltsters' beards of Inverness.
0: Yeah, I imagine. and and Alava. Yeah. I haven't heard anything about E. McLeod's logic for not using them. They didn't mention anything about them being too difficult to clean or anything like that, but mm. much more about they were just going to go back with, get their malt from maltsters from because they thought they could supply it and consistent and better quality yeah
1: yeah that'll be the reason i'm sure
0: yeah um, well i think saline boxes are quite popular in brewing in the day but again i don't know why that would quite that would have more grip there than 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 in distilling is it, is it a space
1: thing or maybe it's more automated rather than turning it by hand
0: possibly yeah so
1: are we are we we're we finished on the malt floor and we're heading for the kiln, oh, are we? Uh,
0: not quite, not quite. Because something occurred to me. There is because although you know there's maybe something to say about not every very few distilleries now have malting floors.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think we've probably mentioned them all, um, and, and in fact, only one distillery is able to supply all of its own malt, which is a uh, Springbank, which which also does the the malting for Cochrane as well. But that that. That's relatively small production compared to all the other guys. No Diageo distillery has a malting floor operating now, and hasn't had for for some considerable time.
1: You'd think they'd want to get on in, in on the romance of it, and, and and they must they must have looked at some one of their portfolio, looked at their portfolio and thought, right, is there is there scope for.
0: Yeah, you would think something like reintroducing or, or Royal Laflaga or something like that? You know, like one of the wee more niche. Is a not a maltings mm. at Glenord? It's not a
1: floor maltings.
0: No, it's it's like Port Ellen. It's it's, yeah. it's, huge. it's huge. Well, it's you new know, it's a commercial. because
1: the Glen Ord supplies for quite a few of the yeah the ones, doesn't it?
0: But also, I suppose it's not. I mean, it it's over the twentieth century, really. if I remember rightly. I think it was Spayburn was the first to give up their their malting floor, and then they experimented a bit with drum maltings for a while, as had Glen Grant, apparently shortly beforehand. Uh It didn't seem to have come to anything. But Glen Grant gave up as early as... No, sorry, Spayburn gave up as early as 1890. they, They came into the 20th century without floor maltens but they had a version of kind of drum maltens which is you can still see at the distillery apparently because they've been preserved through through historic Scotland but they were setting, setting the trend there really so that all through the 20th century distillery after distillery were given up the floor maltens and although and, and I think by 1970 if not a couple of years earlier Diageo had given up completely or DCL so DCL didn't have anything after 1968. Um, would, that, would that fit with what we're saying about Ben Rinnis? Mm, no. no.
1: Because you said 80, huh? 82, 84 or something
0: like that. For oh, ben no. Would a salad in box count as a floor maltings?
1: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay.
0: Ooh, controversial. Um, but it meant... Just kind of general industry standard then became you don't do your own floor maltings, it's going to be produced centrally and produced commercially. Uh-huh. But even at that point, the commercial maltsters weren't all like Ord or Port Ellen or, or what's become Isle or uh, Burkehead. The commercial maltsters were still doing floor maltings up, up until, well, the last one I think was Glen Eagles' maltings. Closed in 1969, wow. and that's that's in Tullybarden. No, sorry, Blackford, where Tullybarden Tully Distillery is. Right. Um, so Tully, uh, Blackford itself has such a great access to good water that there were quite a lot of breweries around the the town itself. It's just it's only really a street, you know, if you've ever been through it. But um, and in fact, Tullybarden Distillery, I, I think part of it grew up out of a, what was a a brewery. Um but the what was the commercial maltsters there, at Glen Eagles, they they were last to give up the floor maltings. Uh in I say, saying nineteen sixty nine. But in the town itself you would you would recognise that building. It's just on the right hand side if you're going through the, the main part of the town, you would recognise it. Okay. As if from a full maltings from an from you know, from a regular distillery or yeah. you know, if a distillery that, that that does its own things, so but it's it's a quite a nice wee bit of um bit of history just sitting there. Mm. But just now something else, and you know, I'm not quite even sure what what they do there. Um, but you would recognise that as as a piece of malting history.
1: So I'm um, I'm coming back again to my my question from before that I'm just reiterating it so I remember it next time I'm. I'm in one of these distilleries that um, has its own maltings or has its own kiln, and I, I presume I've answered the question right there. What what does it give you? Why why continue having this malt floor? Well, it, it must be because of the romance of it, and and because of the the, the 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 marketing aspect of it. It looks great. It harks back to a more you know romantic era mm. and also it's so they can control at least some of the kilning process yeah it must be if, something
2: if right.
0: yeah i think you're right so i think i think i'm if i'm right in thinking cochoman only does local barley I'm, i'll stand corrected in that one but also for a you know for a long time our bag talked about reintroducing mm. Malt floors, you rightly mentioned Brucoladi, and you're, you're you're ahead there and I understand in understanding salad in boxes. That's interesting. I'm, I'm intrigued by that. Ben re- reintroduced in 2013. Now if, I don't know if that changed with the change in ownership. Arden Marken, I've got malting floors. Why? But, but I, I visited, but I, I think they'd used them at that point. I can't remember seeing any malt down.
1: I'm trying to whereabouts were they? Were they kind of? I can I can picture the I can picture the warehouses and I can picture the going into the front yeah,
0: so front it, of the visitor center. What up to date information I could get was saying are the merchants got them, but they've mm-hmm. not used. Them. So that 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 would make sense as to why I thought I hadn't seen. But again, if you're small enough to be artisan, if it doesn't matter in the same way about meeting mm-hmm. the in inverted commas consistency of your product. If you're using small batches, that, that kind of makes sense. That that's going to add a layer, of a layer to your your batches, isn't it? Yeah. You no. Know, we produced the barley this this week. That's or, right. In this particular way, and well, I suppose it's it just depends how you want to present your whiskey to the world, really.
1: Does here's a we here's a wee question for you. Does the, the fabled salty maritime coastal notes that are supposed to imbue the whiskey that is maturing in the warehouses situated in coastal areas does it start to play a part that early if the floor malting is situated in a coastal region oh well probably i mean the the, logic would say no don't be daft because it's only it's only lying out there for a week
0: well, I, I, in in truth, I can't answer the question. But in a classic obfuscation, I'll I'll answer another question.
1: I love a bit of obfuscation,
0: which is uh, that the suggestion that there are some you know, some distilleries that the the water source runs over a lot of peat, so they're saying, well, that this is the this is the water that we you peat the barley with. So that's where we're putting the peat in. That that That's, that's maybe a wee bit of that. Yeah, a wee bit more fanciful. <laughs> because The temperature of the barley is never going to get high enough because it has to be regulated to, I think, about, to about 16 degrees or something. Yeah, You're never going to get high enough to release the fennel content out of the water. So it's, all, it's, it's all a bit negligible, that bit. Lovely to think that the peating starts... No, it you know it's it's like uh, the whiskey takes takes in the peat with its mother's milk kind of. Uh, I, of
1: I I thought those days were gone, right? Where where those um, apocryphal tales were wheeled out to unsuspecting consumers. <laughs> but I was listening to a podcast, and I won't I won't say which one, and I won't say which distillery ambassador was on but there was a guy there was a guy, There was a distillery amb- ambassador from a, a well-known whiskey brand who said as much as no it wasn't him, <laughs> no, it wasn't him. so peter's showing me someone's name on the screen but no it wasn't it wasn't him That's um, the only
0: advantage you've got from actually doing <laughs> this <brand. laughs>
1: but this ambassador came on and said hi hey, so all the whiskies that are made in this region are all famously peaty, but ours is famously unpeated because our water travels over doesn't travel over a peat bog. So uh, it was. <laughs> uh, I couldn't believe it. I just, I just thought, come on, you, you can't, you can't say your whiskey's unpeated because the water source that came up, didn't travel through a peat bog. That's just mm. nonsense. And I think anybody with a, with a "Whiskey for Dummies" book knows that. Anyway, anyway, enough of that negativity. But
0: um, then I suppose that's what we, we set out to do—is just to hold up a hold up a candle to some of this, if if, if only for our own enjoyment. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, are we? Are we heading to the kiln yet? Are
0: you still? Get, I think we can get the chariots out, right? Load up the barley. Let's load them up, and and put them put them in either down the chute or up the
1: conveyor belt, or
0: get, uh, yeah, into the shoveled conveyor belt. I think. Yeah. Right. Do you think anyone noticed that? What a cheesy Radio Two kind of reference that was. <laughs>
1: I liked it. I thought it was great. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's the purpose of the kiln? What's all that oh. about? We've got we've got our green malt. It's germinated. It's started to sprout rootlets. The starch in the grain has started to be converted into sugars.
0: Yeah. So you you want you want the plant now to stop growing. Yeah because that 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 sugar is going to be used if you're a plant you're going to use that sugar source as the energy for for growing yeah so you're doing two things one you you're stopping the by drying the the grain you're stopping that process the plant itself won't use up any more of that that sugar mm. and um, and you're saving the sugar for yourself as a as a distiller
1: and that's that's why historically Isle of whiskies and some Highland pe- Highland whiskies would be peated, because that's the only source of fuel.
0: Pretty much, yeah. But
1: I think that's 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 fairly commonplace knowledge of, I would think. So you're you need to lay out the lay out the green malt on a perforated floor, and allow heat. If you're let's say you're doing it in a kind of inverted commas traditional kiln. You'd be laying out batches of the green malt on a perforated floor. I think I've seen them. They've got kind of a mesh floor and kind of hessian flooring, so the so yeah. the grains don't fall through, but the smoke can percolate
0: up. Yeah, I've not seen that many. I have to confess, but yeah, only only and sometimes just from from the kiln itself. If we can you can look up and see. Yeah, yeah, but you, it's one of those peculiar magical processes it's clearly happening above your head yeah. <laughs> smoke's going up but um, yeah pretty much that's it you know you've got your your barley laid out there and you want it to to stop stop being energised
1: so um, the, the, there's you don't obviously don't want to burn the the barley so you wouldn't want it too hot it's it's a I can't, well for the for the peated whiskies, it's, a, it's going to be a combination of heat and
0: smoke yeah it's,
1: um, it's, It's what's required.
0: Yeah, and I think you're touching on something there again about there's Mm. whilst there's a science here, there's also an art Mm. um, in maintaining the correct temperature and making. Well, if I'm right in thinking that you shouldn't really have the temperature above 55 degrees Celsius or centigrade, so there's no rush to toast the barley to the nth degree. Mm Um, it's much more a progressive process of just drying the barley off at that kind of level without ever burning it, because you don't you don't want to introduce chemical compounds from overheating the barley yeah. that will affect the flavour of, of the whiskey. Of course, if, it's like it's like burning you know, your toast, isn't it? Right. There's much more about there's again the artistry about delivering good quality barley is about. It's it's not just speeding the process up to an end yeah. an nth degree, although maybe going a couple of steps back a bit, it might take you know eight to twelve days mm-hmm. to get to this point from a floor malting. But depending on the the nature of the um, commercial maltings, if it's a if it's a germination vessel that can do the whole thing, that you may be looking at three or four days to get to this point.
1: Yeah. I was just looking back there, and I can see the when I was talking about the germination vessel, they also it does the steeping as well. So Mm. they're called SGKV steeping germination and kilning vessels. So I wonder how how prevalent they are. You know, I presume. Well, how many maltsters are there?
0: Uh, There's not that not that many. 14, is it? Is there that many? 14 malting sites in oh, Scotland nice. I, think. Wow. I can see if I can see if I can get to where we want uh, yeah so owned by different different sets of maltsters mm-hmm. so Beards I've got three sites uh, the are both in Inverness which was wasn't a name. That I have to say, was terribly familiar to me. They've got Bucky and Glenesk, Crisp, and Aloa and Port Gordon, Simpsons. Which is that, that's the most familiar name to me in the round. They've got uh, one, oh. <laughs> you know. and Diageo have got Burkehead, which is in the Murray Firth, as well as Ord, Port Ellen, and Rosale. So. An educated guess would be places like Rose Isle would be the ones who have got those fancy ones. Yeah. They can do everything. Sure. Whereas you, a site like Portel and maybe Ord, which unless it's been upgraded, has you know is going to be the 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 two drum method. And I'm I've I have, I have no education to guess what goes on in the other organisations. Yeah. So that that so, so I think that's fourteen sites across Scotland, and no, noticeably they're all quite far. They're all relatively north.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. I thought there may be something going on down with Grants then Garvin, but
1: yeah. and they don't have their own.
0: Not as far as I know.
1: Old so we're at sixty degrees in the in the kiln.
0: Yeah, well, fifty-five. Keep keeping it low. Okay. And well, there's another wee. Just while we're in, in the, the realm of just puncturing a few pieces of artifice. You know, the majority of the have got those uh, pagoda towers. You know, uh, yeah. the, the the Charles Doig design towers, which look beautiful. You know, you can't 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 fault. Well, maybe I'm actually gonna defeat my argument here when I think of they do look beautiful, so of course if you are <laughs> gonna put the top of your building. Oh, I'll put a dog turd on, or I'll put a. <laughs> uh, but you know, Doyle only came up with that design in 1889. Was it? But, was it? Where was the?
1: Where was the inspiration for that? I know it's. I know it's purpose, but it, it, it obviously didn't have to look that way. I don't think the the look of it was intrinsic to to its purpose of drawing the air, and and acting. Acting like a an exhaust um, or a chimney in some way, yeah, and drawing, drawing the air through. But yes. why? Why they're so iconic? Do we know why they look that way?
0: Well, I think it it looks very Japanese.
1: That's and where I was pretty, heading. yeah.
0: And if anything that I that I could understand from it, it was almost too too good. It was too good at drawing the smoke through. <laughs> it's clearly a man ahead of his time. But even then, almost behind his own time, because then by I having designed it by eighteen eighty nine, by the time nineteen hundred came, Spayburn, Glen Grant, they're already getting both. Um, I think I've seen photographs of both those distilleries, and if I'm right in thinking, they both have got pagoda towers, but they've gone. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the process is gone. Or even if we go back to the new kid on the block with the salad in boxes, is Glen Keith, nineteen fifty seven. That that's that's a bit of affectation we on there, surely. Aye,
1: well, Ardnahoe on Islay, it's got a pagoda on top,
0: mm.
1: and it, it, it does look great. And I suppose if you're, like you say, if you're building a distillery, what are you, what are you going to do? Eh?
0: <laughs> well, it's 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 a term. It's part of the part of whiskey vernacular, it or is. the vernacular of whiskey architecture, I guess. But but there you go. And just just a, just another wee. Point to mention along the way is that you know that Pagoda Tower isn't that old either, and lo and behold, it came in just a few years before everybody started chucking out the notion of you know, as, 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 a, as a kind of preamble to people start chucking out the notion that they're going to be doing their own maltings.
1: It was the beta max of the um, <laughs> the um airflow system of turn of the century distilleries.
0: Well, yeah, what well, we. I'd cut you off, Stuart, around about um, thinking about those larger malts. So that I think there are fourteen.
1: I don't know where I was heading with that. Um, I suppose one one question to pose is: if if there's if there's fourteen malting sites and there's a hundred and thirty odd working distilleries, and all those distilleries are sourcing their malt from one of those sites, then is there a uniformity? How how, how how bespoke can you can you get your malt? I mean, we know the story of of Berclady saying to their maltsters, "Okay, give us the make it as peaty as you possibly can, and just turn the dial up to eleven and give us some Octamore. So, I wonder how how you know, what's the conversation that's that's had on a regular basis between the distillers and the maltsters? Yeah. Does everybody have their own template? And you go, okay. So today we're we're producing malt for distillery X. That has to be run through the, the facility, in, this kind of manner, or we have to change it around for, tomorrow's batch because we're doing it for a different distillery and they want a different, malted in a different way. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I I. I um, to be controversial in that, I didn't find myself that convinced that. The process is that accurate for a, for a number of reasons, but primarily the measuring system for getting parts per million. If you're looking at Adam mm-hmm. uh but also that, and by virtue of that, the actual process is again is such an art. It's not a science. So, although take that back a couple of steps. So, if we if we're using malting floors as a kind of benchmark, which have all the apparent trappings of authenticity and tradition in in whiskey, you would. Eat, you'd expect that to be a wee bit random.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, That there's, there's humans at work here. But I also picked up, I think in reading Andrew Jeffords' book, you know, um, S- Smoke, Pete and... Please smoke Smoking Spirit. Smoking Spirit, yeah, thank you. I know we're both admirers of it, and obviously you've got better command of the title than I have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, even, even at Port Ellen Maltings, there's there's kind of a bit of a competition between the guys who get in to set the peak,
2: uh-huh.
0: about who can get the the best draw, who can who can get the best amount of smoke through the all. and there's a something beautifully human about that endeavour. Um, so well, I got the sense that actually the way now I might, I'm you no know, I'm wrong to be corrected in this, but I got the sense that what they were they were best at, and maybe these new vessels that are, you know, can do it all, there's there's maybe a different bit of control. I'll, 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 I'll remain, I'll leave that open. Mm-hmm. But I got a sense that what they were really good at was getting honours of peat in and then if you wanted less, have some unpeated malt in. You know, right. you dilute that. Now, again, I'm reading between the lines there, but that that's the way it looked to me, and as part of the deconstruction, because we were going back to the Bru- Laddie there about their asking Port Ellen, you know, can you can you give us sixty ppm? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the reply came back sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that, that that's so beautiful, and it's it's completely archaic and arcane you know, about how it's you know it's so inexact. Um, but maybe what came back then for Bruchladi is that uh, Bairds were able to supply a higher peating level. Although mm-hmm. I, I don't think they were—I think they were trying to get highly peated Port Charlotte at the time, but they ended up getting so high off the dial or beyond the dial that they, they decided to call it Altamore. Um, but Beard's installed new equipment so that they could produce. They could produce consistently about sixty parts per million.
1: Ah, see, but that um, idea of the guys at the maltings having a competition and and seeing who can who can produce the, the smokiest malt or who's got the best technique and who knows the tricks of leaving leaving that office window open so that it affects the air flow through the building and all of that. Stuff. I mean that just speaks of the of the very uh, alluring idea of of the fingerprint being pressed into the into the the whiskey, you know, the whiskey being made by people and and people making the whiskey and everybody in in that line of production and the, the each step along the way has a has a part to play. And like we were talking previously about you'd looked and calculated that there may be more than 50 factors where different influences could impart flavors or characteristics or 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 imbue the whiskey with some kind of characteristic and each one of those 50 different processes or 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 points on the on the way through the production process each one of those points is i think the hand of a person's involved so whether it's you know it could be any number of things. Pick up, you know it could be any part of the process. I think, you know somebody's involved in that decision to turn the malt, open the window, ventilate the floor, the malt floor. Maybe the the kilns run a little hot that day because Jimmy put a couple of blocks of peat too many on, or you know it's or the whatever it is. It's all it's it's the the fingerprint of everyone's involved all the way down the line.
0: Yeah, and I think even in that, it's kind of processes within processes. Because um, from what I was able to garner, the different compounds in the peat, in terms of imparting flavour, have they, they then themselves have different levels of influence. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm trying to think. Well, like if you're putting something in your tea, salt and pepper are going to taste different, aren't they? And also, are going to taste different in which part. You put add them to the cooking process yeah if you're if you're putting something if you're cooking something that's reducing down you might want to put the salt in later because reducing down process would over concentrate the salt so I, I, I that's the best analogy I can think about but and similarly different flavor compounds in the peat appear and interact and influence the flavour at different points in terms of the temperature mm. or, or at the le- actual levels of peating. But that, so, that'll, that'll change
1: as well in regards to the different composition of the different types of peat because you know we've talked about, yeah. um, you said earlier on about Highland Park using peat from Orkney, who you've mentioned previously, Springbank using peat from the Highland region or Aberdeenshire There's region so certainly and, not Iowa peat no? yeah so um and these different geographical areas will produce different peats because of the composition of what's actually decomposed whether it's you know certain types of mosses or certain types of plants and whether it's certain types of shrubbery or or, or vegetative matter that's decomposed you might find that there's certain types of mosses that grow on Isla that don't grow in Kintyre that don't grow in Aberdeenshire so when those things then eventually get combusted you're releasing a whole bunch of different yeah aromas and chemicals and that's going to have a resultant effect on the on the malt that you're kilning which Brings me to a question that uh, I read that yields of alcohol are affected by the kilning process in as much as if you have a peated malt, it will produce fewer litres of alcohol per ton than a non-peated malt. And I I did a wee bit of digging and I ended up having some conversations, uh, late night internet-based conversations, (laughs) that got a little bit fraught. And I wasn't I wasn't able to come up with a, a wholly satisfactory answer in some respects, and I'm trying to remember what those answers were.
0: Yeah, I, I, you've mentioned that before, and I was thinking backwards from that, actually, because we could. There are certain criticisms to be read of the the industrializing process over the twentieth century and the. the the drive to maximise profit, and I wonder how that sits then when you read uh, other other claims that oh, no, everybody's whiskey was peated back in the day, because that 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 was the that was the heat source that was mm-hmm. that was the fuel of halo, and I wonder then the reason peated malts have become became the outliers, particularly in the Highlands, is that that was a more expensive process. And also as if we get some hints from Kilhomen that they say they only do the local barley, they only peat it to twenty parts per million because it takes too long. Or, it, or if they took longer it would it would mess up their, their kind of time scale. So that actually the imparting of flavor of peat is about time. I think off the top of my head Long row, you're looking about two days of of peating time there to get it to about fifty to fifty five parts per million. But Springbank in the same kiln, ostensibly the same barley, mm-hmm. or it would be the same barley coming in. So the every every other process, excuse me, is the same, but they would only be looking to peat to twelve to fifteen parts per million. That that's only six hours of peat smoke and thirty hours of warm air. So, even that drying time is shorter because there's less peat involved, and peat i think if I'm talking this through rightly, burns at such low temperature that it doesn't impart that you know a huge level of heat to dry them the malt out so maybe if we take a step back and that you can see in that context a drive if you're trying to maximize your output and your profit then. You would avoid the use of peat, both and again. If we go back to that analogy about the way things are affected in the line and down the line, <clears throat> then if it's going to take you two days to dry your barley with peat, or a day and a half with uh, warm air,
2: you're
0: mm-hmm. not necessarily uh, thinking that uh, an artisan product is your is what you're trying to provide and you can see that there's a move there that prof- time is going to be costing you money in that context um but notwithstanding so
1: is the is the nub of the equation is the is the, the, the the kernel what's deciding the yield that you're getting on pitted versus non pitted mm. does this does this chime with your with your argument i i would posit that it's been ascertained that the smoky phenols adhere more readily to grains that have a higher moisture content that's what I think I've stumbled upon and so if they have a higher moisture content that then is going to have an effect further down the line the grain is required to be to have a higher moisture content so that the phenols will adhere to it and that then results in a a longer drying process, which takes more time. Why does that then affect the yield? I I couldn't get much further Uh, than that, I don't think.
0: You've kicked this about a few times, and the the best I can think of is the way the smoke comes in. It's got its own compounds, its own tar and stuff like that. I wonder if the way it adheres to the husks themselves... In some ways, a bit like I don't know, putting an extra layer on, you know, a, a, a micro level. Well, you know, if, if we go two or three steps back, if if the fact that your nitrogen level means protein levels are higher, and you can't drain your mash out, we're not just talking one one barley grain. We're talking you no know, millions uh-huh. of yeah that it's enough of us of of a margin of difference. To affect to affect that down the
1: line, I, I I see where you're coming from, but I,
0: mm. I've th- I th- still to get through the mash and flow, though. <laughs> well, let's
1: let's let's think about the, the 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 phenols are adhering to the to the husk, to the grain. Now, could it be that the the smoke and the phenols are not? Let's think of that grain as being not just the husk the kind of shell of the grain but also the the barley content so is the barley content being affected and ultimately the 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 starch inside the grain being affected Mm. and that then is your ultimate cause for the lower yield so you the first of all the 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 barley has to have a higher moisture content for the phenols to adhere and it's not just going to be the the surface of the barley that's wetter it's going to be the whole grain isn't it so the 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 whole grain takes up the the phenols it's not I I used to think of it just as the the phenols adhering to the exterior of the 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 grain the husk but thinking about it it's 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 kind of imbuing and imparting the whole of it's permeating the, the 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 grain so then somehow is, is that affecting the starch's ability to be converted into fermentable sugars?
0: Yeah, those are good questions, sure. I think because I a, it, and you've, you've taken a different approach here because I imagined it was like the tar was coming in and then given, really given the green a tarry overcoat that that affected, mm-hmm. but
1: but the then that
0: would be to engage on it, but um, uh, uh, uh,
1: so, but then skipping ahead to the to the milling, and you've got your percentages of your percentages yep. of um, husk, flour, and grist. Is it only the husk that has the PT characteristics, or is that PT phenol characteristic evident in the flour as well?
0: I think you've got a good point
1: there. Questions, questions. Yeah. Here's another question for you then, if it's if the peat affects the yield and we have talked about this before because we're wont to do such such things. Um if the peat's affecting the yield, how's it affecting the flavour?
0: Hey. There therein lies another conundrum. You're, um You're
1: you're talking about artistry and maybe a little bit of alchemy and maybe some magic going on in there. And Magic, it, well, as we know, is just unknown science, but still magic nonetheless
0: yeah and well i want I want to hang something just to hang it in there so we we come back to it about uh-huh. measuring measuring peatiness because we we too have kicked about the two means to measure it, and actually, my answer to your question came as a, as an accident to thinking about measuring those two levels of peatiness. Uh-huh. so we'll, if we come back to. The Great Octomore scandal of Isla, two thousand and two, in in a wee while. It was in that context that I was thinking that I have got an answer to your question though. How how does Pete come out the other end? Uh-huh. Because each well, if we focus on Isla, because it was a much neglected island for a while. I remember visiting. And, you know, our bag was shut. Mm. The Flady was closed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that, that seems unimaginable now, but. The, the the trend or the popularity of Petey whiskey was just unrecognised, you know, when now you've got Petey versions of Ben Ria, Glendronach, uh I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Balveni even are are doing Petey versions of, of of their whiskey. But I think traditionally Ardbeg had the highest peating levels in the barley, but if their their um spirit when it comes off the still mm-hmm. isn't the highest. So I mean looking at our bag would would ordinarily have something like a barley peated to about fifty-five ppm, but in their their malt would come off the still about twenty-three to twenty-four ppm. Conversely, Lafroig would have it about they'd be looking to get about something about fifty. Um but their malt comes in at 25 ppm. and I, I, Because then we're beginning to talk about another alchemy, aren't we, about what happens in the stills. Yes. Aye. Our bag have all got wee condensers, haven't they, that come down off the line arm. And although the highest peat might go in, mm-hmm. I wonder if that process is how the spirit becomes sweeter and less peaty. And, and to enhance my argument, I think there's another discussion in, Andrew Jefford's book about the master distiller of LaFroy at the time, talking about they they got some malt in and we were tasting and we wondering why it hadn't picked up the Lefroy iodine notes, oh, yeah. and he concluded that actually it wasn't the malt; it was something that went on in the Lefroy stills. Well,
1: I could I can I can comment a little bit on that. Because I'm just looking through uh, Gregory H. Miller's Whiskey Science: A Condensed Distillation, and um, it's, it's it's really one for the geeks, man. It's it's just uh, so I'll, I'll I'll just pick a couple of little bits out. He's from the the kilning chapter. Petunia is correlated with phenol creosols, sorry, cresols and guaiacols which are derived from peat smoke and a peaty characteristic is also associated with eugenol which is oak derived the medicinal quality of some whiskies is correlated with o-cresol metacresol contributes more to the peaty quality and to the medicinal quality so he's got various different tables and uh, charts of um all the whiskies that you would know as peaty whiskies he's got charts of, of them and they're all analysed and he's analysed them according to these different uh, chemical compounds that are found within them
0: I'm thinking the glycol flavourings tend to be at lower levels of P-ting, but the creosols and the phenols arrive at a higher level of ptings, now I don't know what that means I mean I don't know if you get one drop of phenol. It tastes like forty creosols if that's a comparator I don't know uh-huh. but they again in and of themselves it's not it's not a linear process they they arrive and disappear at different levels in the process
1: yeah i think i think so and just to to, to dwell for a moment longer on your um was it lefroig or Lagavulin um, iodine lefroig yeah. i think had, had... well i've got I've got a little um Paragraph highlighted here, he says, Some Isla whiskies, notably Lagavulin and Laphroaig, Laphroaig have an iodine flavour characteristic. He then goes on to say, Their iodine content is 38.1 micrograms per litre, it's close to the taste threshold of 40 micrograms per litre. The origin of this iodine has not been determined, though it is commonly believed to be associated with Isla peat. However, a survey of Irish, Scotch, and Welsh whiskies. Reveals no apparent correlation between peat and iodine. Indeed, the greatest iodine content at, at 41.3 micrograms per litre was associated with the Welsh distillery Pendron, which did not use peated malt. The iodine flavour is most probably not from iodine at all, but from bromophenols, which have iodine flavour character. 2,6-dibromophenol is present in many Scotch whiskies. At twenty to six hundred times its taste threshold in water, it is not known whether these bromophenols enter whiskey through process water, malt, or by some other mechanism. <laughs> Nobody knows.
0: <laughs> so
1: lovely. Isn't it? It's, I mean, there, there, there's that that magic thing that we've spoken about, about before, where we don't want to know. Do we want to know everything? Do we want to just shine a shine a really bright torch? into every single corner and, and demystify the whole process I, it would it would spoil it to some degree wouldn't it
0: i completely agree And I, I know you're a a great lover of of brookladdy um but I'll, I'll steal your thunder slightly a wee bit about the the great the great uh <laughs> the great peating controversy of 2002 and I think it's like I think it's teller. What I think I like about this story is the context that happens in. Because ten years previously, our Beg was still shut. PT whiskey was really not something to be sought after. You know, there were so few I think it was Allied at the time owned Lefroy and Ardbeg and didn't know what to do with the two of them really. Um, you know, got really kind of stuck on they've got two PT distilleries and what do we do? Now you've got the phenomenon that we're on Islay, clearly on Lagaville, they were owned by Diageo at the time, although they did close the
2: mm-hmm.
0: hotel in eighty three, and have since magically they want to, to reopen it but you've also got uh, Santori owned, Beaumont and Lafroigue now, so you've got we've got this around this big circle where organisations now own two PE distilleries uh-huh. but there was a day when that wasn't Happening, but what you had early two thousands is the rebirth of the love of peaty whiskey. Mm. Part of a the kind of driven by malts. You know, there's no doubt about that. I mean, it wouldn't be people necessarily setting out to have a, a peaty blend? Maybe I haven't heard of many great aficionados of, of White Horse or anything like that. But um there was this kind of scandal that maybe, perhaps, Ruth they were were overstating, overplaying their hands slightly by the accusation being. And I, I don't want to be scandal making here that they they claimed that their peating levels were higher in their barley, but they were applying a method that is ordinarily applied to new mixed spirit. Mm-hmm. So they maybe, maybe take that a couple of steps back. So there's two two ways to to try and work out what the phenol content is in in the, uh, the peating level is colorimetric, which is uses a series of dyes or agents that bind to the um, the phenols, and then they're measured by light and an analysis of that. But there's also um, high pressure liquid chromat-
1: chromatography.
0: chromatography, which is usually applied to new make spirit. So you've got colorimetric, which is about malt. And HPLC, which is about new make spirit, ah, okay. And HPLC usually gives a higher level, right? And the great scandal of two thousand and two was that maybe Bruce Laddie had been a wee bit fast and loose and saying that they claimed a higher level than was really in their malt, um, because they were misapplying HPLC and colorimetric. Now I've not allegedly. Got yeah, I, allegedly, yeah, and I've not got any beef here, you know if if you've ever been in a diet and you go on the scales <laughs> and, and you get two different beans, you usually take the lower one. <laughs> the, if you try to make a whiskey, of course you would take the higher one. However, story goes that they'd asked bears to produce this fantastically peaty malt and it was so powerful that they thought they would make, um, they wouldn't do porchality, they would they'd call it Octamore, which is a farm.
2: Yeah.
0: Between Bifladi and, and Port Charlotte, but and they were able to analyse the barley and the new make for two thousand and two and two thousand and three. So rather than get into the hyperbole of it all, which and we'll have to give Bifladi the due here. They were good at making making stories. Why? Brilliant! You know they they had the FBI looking at them through the cameras. <laughs> There was a submarine turned up. You know, oh, oh, oh. they they never lost an opportunity. So, but I mean, so I, I don't want to be thinking I'm down on them. But um, Port Ellen said they couldn't do it. Baird said we could maybe do, well, a bit of monkeying around. We could do mm-hmm. eight parts per million, and it, so it was never really clear wh- what was going on. So there was a proper reanalysis of uh, two thousand two, and in the final spirit. They got a parts per million, presumably by <laughs> HPLC, of twenty nine point six parts per million, and that that's higher than all the other Islas. Right. You know, and I think a good comparator then. So I think if my memory serves me right, there was a wee bit of a rivalry between the uh, the Arbeg You know, we've been that's the PE. That's and right. Uh, yeah. um, but clearly, there's something goes on in the Arbeg stills. If they're producing a much lower PE uh, final spirit, so uh, I think
1: they, they both won in in that in that kind of competition. You know, there's no losers because everybody everybody was talking about it and everybody was picking their picking their winner. Do you like George Foreman? Do you like Muhammad Ali? It's, it's <laughs> no, there's no losers. There's no losers. Everybody.
0: But yeah, well, lo and behold, when they analysed the 2003, it came out at 46.4. You she know, was just double. Yeah. So, so clearly they were able to get more people in. But I, th- I think it's, like you say, there's no losers in that. And I think it, it, the, the story is much more about how, what a shift in a matter of a few years to putting Petey Whiskey front and centre. Yeah.
2: So,
0: so you have Port Charlotte, Octomore, even, even now when haven are doing their own Petey, Whiskey. So it's a magical change,
1: um, yeah. I, I think everybody is. There's loads. Of, yeah, it seems that everybody's got their their peat expression that they're putting out every once in a while. So flavors of peat being affected by the type of vegetation that's that's com- decomposed and geographical things going on and peating levels affecting how it tastes and how it smells and how smoky it is, how peaty it is. A couple of questions. Do you do you find a difference between a peaty characteristic and a smoky characteristic? And my second question is, do you find that in peaty whiskies there's ever an element of a sulfury aspect to it, regardless of whether the, you're going along the lines of the sherry cask and the sulfur candles and things like that? Um I
0: can't say I've ever picked up a sulfury note in a in a Petey Whiskey in and of itself, I've, I've, I've usually attributed that to an interaction, actually, of the whiskey and the, and the sherry. I would probably struggle to distinguish between a kind of, a kind of Petey or the smoky. And I think that it might in part, I think, uh, again, depends on the cast selection. If Lefroy, for example, have tended to move towards first fill Bourbon for the, the main... Focus of their whiskies and that that's brought a sweetness to the whiskey that, in some ways, to my taste, you know, there's no, there's no way to quantify this for certain because my tastes no doubt have changed, mm. um, but I think that sweetness has, to my taste, has been to some extent at the the expense of the the iodine note, but um, no, where's a smoke in that. Yeah, I I think well, I, my. I can remember tasting some obroas, and I thought they it was like cold smoke. There was definite smoke there. I got, so,
1: as much as I don't want to talk about tasting notes, as as we said in the introduction, this isn't about tasting notes. I, I, I quite often find a a, a like element in Glen Scotia, or I have of late. But the reason I brought up sulfur was there's a compound that gets created when Peat smoke interacts with a compound in the barley, and this compound is poisonous to a oh. degree, and the way it can be negated within the kilning process is by the addition of sulfur dioxide. Mm. The peating of malt requires a direct application of peat smoke to the drying malt either as part of the kilning process itself or as an additional input to the kiln airflow. And it is still necessary to prevent the formation of nitrosamines in the malt by burning sulfur, normally in the form of briquettes to produce sulfur dioxide, which is added to the airflow passing through the drying malt. This blocks the reaction that results in the formation of nitrosamines from the hordinin in malted barley. So there's, it that just kind of stuck in my mind when you hear people talking about, oh, I got a sulfur thing, I wonder. Is it because of the fabled sulphur candles that they use to sterilise the sherry casks or is it because they're burning sulphur briquettes to mitigate this production of this compound?
0: Ah, um, you got me there Stuart. I, um, again I th- I'm, I'm trying to think the contrast of where where I get uh, the smoke or the peatiness. You know, there, are, there are particular drams, I think um long row, I think, is a wee bit of a sleeper, you know. I, I, quite often you'll not get a lot of smoke on the nose. mm mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's in there when you when you taste. And similarly, we had the Highland Park recently and it was only very late that I got a wee blast of smoke, so much so that I thought it was at one of those little random spring banks where
1: Ah, uh, was that the one we had recently we- on the Aye, and it tastes nigh.
0: Yeah, I'm. Um, I mean, not that, you know, guessing the is always a bit of a, a parlour game. I think, but but it was so much so that I thought, mm, that that's a bit like mm. sometimes you get a, a slightly higher spring Springbank, but others where you, you know you can't miss it. You know, Ardmore can sometimes be a wee bit lower, a wee bit more Lefroy. Sorry, Longmore. Sorry, I'm not getting it right at all. Longroy. But there's no mistaking when you get Kalila or Lagavulin or on those, they they are always in my experience they're always a bit of a a blast of the vegetable-y I, iodine's not the right word but then the kind of vegetable-y medicinal notes mm-hmm. that come thick and fast right away. What
1: was interesting with that mutation tasting that we had a couple of weeks ago was there was uh, the 12-year-old Buna was in there and it was maybe just what it was, neighboured with, the Drams that it was, na- that were tasting next to it. But when I thought I thought it was more peated than I, than I recall the the twelve year old Buna being peated. It just struck me as having quite a, an upfront, full of not full of peat, but definitely there was there was a there was a there was a backbone in there. But that might just be because it was, you know, up against two completely. Really un- unpeated whiskies that had never I'd never heard of peat. So obviously, when you when you taste those side by side, the contrasts are are exaggerated somewhat.
0: So how how about yourself?
1: Do you get those notes then? Sometimes I get um, the difference between smoke and peat is is a different difficult one. When I first was came across somebody talking about the differences, I thought, mm, mm, are you? Are you splitting hairs? Is that, a, you know, is it genuine? And it's something I kind of try and keep in mind whenever I'm tasting a peaty whiskey. Is it, ca- can I categorise it in a way to to one of those two elements of, is it smoky or is it peaty? Is it is it burnt wood or is it something a bit more vegetative going on? That's kind of as far as I can really pick it apart. And I don't know if I would, I don't know if we'll be able to pick out particular dram's or particular distilleries that exhibit one or the other characteristics. Really.
0: Well, now that you're saying it, I think you know over the years certainly have tasted dram's that you know there's there's the wood smoke element, or the is um, a kind of sharpness at the back of your throat and into your nose. Mm-hmm. Peat is. By comparison, like it's a little bit mellower, although, but it's it's a different set of flavors. That, um
1: well, I suppose in a way that's what that's that's what you want from from peating your mm. barley. You want a complex of flavors. You don't just, mm. I, I presume you wouldn't you wouldn't just want your barley to smell of one thing because it's been peated. You 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 want the barley to be imbued with. A, a variety of subtle characteristics that are going to carry on through into the into the into the new making into the matured spirit so it's going to be a kind of multifaceted thing isn't it yeah. but other than um kilning and peated stuff in the kiln peating peating your malt in the kiln do we have anything else to add before we before we wrap it and then we can move on to the next step in the process in the next episode of there's
0: our, it might be nice to sign off with this because although we sort, you know, can sort out for looking for a little bit more insight and understanding, and what, what I like about that idea is that often you, what you find is when once you look a wee bit more, you end up less concise. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, uh, it's a story that, of my life. The more, the more I learn, love it,
0: the, the more we've, we've sort out here to inform ourselves and you find out actually you're maybe better blessed by your own ignorance. And uh, in part, uh, you know, we mentioned a bit of doubt, doubt, but not really sure how precise the malting process was. And uh, I think it was an, an older book uh, I came across by a guy called Graham Noun. I think it was published in 87. In fact, maybe I sent you a book you did? Yeah. from it because it had been delivery. And it was a picture of him. But he quotes a guy called Alec Gunn, who I think was the maltster at Laphroaig at the time. And he says that, he quoted him saying, peating is a seat-of-the-pants operation relying completely on time, temperature, and experience. And if I was to be quoting that, I'm sure quite shortly I'll be quoting that to people and adding the words, sun at the end of it there's something about <laughs> yeah, you know, there's something about Alex's life experiences coming through and that that it's not something you can just take up at a moment's notice uh, and also you've got to be able to, to cope with all those variables and all the, the notes and all. there's something beautiful about it that in the middle of all this apparently industrial process that really there's an a dynamic that is never concluded between the science and and the art and the alchemy of all. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that holds something of the wonder in there, I think.
1: Love it. Love it. That's great. Uh, that's that's worthy of a putting a full stop at the end of that. Your your uh, your your points are the full stop to today's episode I would I would say.
0: Yeah, you can't top that.
1: Nice one. Okay, uh, well, let's uh, let's wrap it there, and um, I look forward to catching up with you before the next episode. But on the next episode, I don't know what we'll do. Let's uh, let's leave that hanging. <laughs> a little bit of a cliffhanger there, and we'll, we'll hopefully uh, catch up and carry on with our Scots whiskey explorations soon.
2: That's great.